Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball, and today's guest is not only an author and knight of the realm, but he's been a lifelong advocate for education, a creativity and innovation maven, and above all, a man whose passion is that we all live our lives just a bit more richly. Sir Ken Robinson, welcome. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you very much. Now, before we begin, um, can you just read to us a little bit from the element to give the listeners a sense of what the book is like? Of course, I'd love to. Yes, the book's called The Element, How Finding Your Passion Changes Everything. Uh, And this is from the introduction. A few years ago, I heard a wonderful story, which I'm very fond of telling. An elementary school teacher was giving a drawing class to a group of six-year-old children. At the back of the classroom sat a little girl who normally didn't pay much attention in school. In the drawing class, she did. For more than 20 minutes, the girl sat with her arms curled around a paper, totally absorbed in what she was doing. The teacher found this fascinating. Eventually, she asked the girl what she was drawing. Without looking up, the girl said, I'm drawing a picture of God. Surprised, the teacher said, but nobody knows what God looks like. The girl said, they will in a minute. I love this story because it reminds us that young children are wonderfully confident in their own imaginations. Most of us lose this confidence as we grow up. Ask a class of first graders which of them think they're creative, and they'll all put their hands up. Ask a group of college seniors the same question, and most of them won't. I believe passionately that we're all born with tremendous natural capacities, and that we lose touch with many of them as we spend more time in the world. Ironically, one of the main reasons this happens is education. The result is that too many people never connect with their true talents and therefore don't know what they're really capable of achieving. In that sense, they don't know who they really are. I travel a great deal and work with people all around the world. I work with education systems, with corporations, and with not-for-profit organizations. Everywhere, I meet students who are trying to figure out their futures and don't know where to start. I meet concerned parents who are trying to help them, but instead often steer them away from their true talents on the assumption that their kids have to follow conventional routes to success. I also meet employers who are struggling to understand and make better use of the diverse talents of the people in their companies. Along the way, I've lost track of the numbers of people I've met who have no real sense of what their individual talents and passions are. They don't enjoy what they're doing now, but they have no idea what actually would fulfill them. On the other hand, I also meet people who have been highly successful in all kinds of fields who are passionate about what they do and couldn't imagine doing anything else. I believe that their stories have something important to teach all of us about the nature of human capacity and fulfillment. As I've spoken at events around the world, I found it's real stories like these, at least as much as statistics and the opinions of experts, to persuade people that we all need to think differently about ourselves and about what we're doing with our lives, about how we're educating our children and how we're running our organizations. This book contains a wide range of stories about the creative journeys of very different people. Many of them were interviewed specifically for this book. These people tell how they first came to recognize their unique talents and how they make a highly successful living from doing what they love. What strikes me is that often their journeys haven't been conventional. They've been full of twists, turns, and surprises. Often those I interviewed said that our conversations for the book revealed ideas and experiences that they hadn't discussed in this way before. The moment of recognition, the evolution of their talents, 
the encouragement or discouragement of family, friends, and teachers? What made them forge ahead in the face of numerous obstacles? Their stories are not fairy tales, though. All of these people are leading complicated and challenging lives. Their personal journeys haven't been easy or straightforward. They've all had their disasters as well as their triumphs. None of them has perfect lives. But all of them regularly experience moments that feel like perfection. Their stories are often fascinating. But this book isn't really about them. It's about you. My aim in writing it is to offer a richer vision of human ability and creativity and of the benefits to all of us of connecting properly with our individual talents and passions. This book is about issues that are of fundamental importance in our lives and in the lives of our children, our students, and the people we work with. I use the term the element to describe the place where the things we love to do and the things we're good at come together. I believe it's essential that each of us find his or her element, not simply because it will make us more fulfilled, but because as the world evolves, the very future of our communities and institutions will depend on it. The world is changing faster than ever in our history. Our best hope for the future is to develop a new paradigm of human capacity to meet a new era of human existence. We need to evolve a new appreciation of the importance of nurturing human talent, along with an understanding of how talent expresses itself differently in every individual. We need to create environments in our schools and in our workplaces and in our public offices where every person is inspired to grow creatively. We need to make sure that all people have the chance to do what they should be doing, to discover the element in themselves and in their own way. This book is a hymn to the breathtaking diversity of human talent and passion and to our extraordinary potential for growth and development. It's also about understanding the conditions under which human talents will flourish or fade. It's about how we can all engage more fully in the present and how we can prepare in the only possible way for a completely unknowable future. To make the best of ourselves and of each other, we urgently need to embrace a richer conception of human capacity. We need to embrace the element. Thank you for that. Um, did you ever get a look at the picture? The picture? Of God. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I'd love to have seen it. I've looked at the it, But of course, you know, I, I see lots of children's paintings and drawings and they have you know, a wonderful expressive quality to them, which is, it tends to fade, you know, as, as they get a little bit older. That's a big, partly because they become more self-conscious, but also sometimes because they don't get the right type of encouragement. I was speaking a while ago to a friend of mine. He said her, her daughter, a similar age, had uh, been doing a drawing in class. They were asked to do a drawing of a countryside scene. And she coloured all her flowers in in different colours and, and painted the clouds green and, and the sky, I think, was a, a shade of purple. And she loved the drawing and she handed it in and, and the teacher said to her, you know, uh, clouds aren't green. And she thought, well, mine are. <laughs> and that's, that's a good example of education, I suppose, steering us away from creativity to a certain extent. Yes, and... I mean, I don't speak in criticism of teachers. You know, I never do. I mean, I, I know wonderful teachers, and great teaching is the heart of good education. But it, 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 it can be often just that critical comment at the wrong moment. I mean, I remember when I was a kid at school, uh, I, I used to love singing. We had weekly singing classes. 
And I didn't think much about it. I mean, I just loved to do it. We stood in straight lines and we sang these old folk songs. They had the words up on a, a chart at the front of the room. And the teacher would walk along the rows of kids and would just listen to each one you know, from time to time. Thinking back, it was a bit like Russian roulette. You know, she never quite knew that she was going to land in front of you. But anyway, one day she did. And she stopped in front of me and listened. So I sang up, you know, because I, I was enjoying it. And she said to me, you're flat. And I didn't know what she meant. So I sang louder. And she said, you're still flat. And walked off. And I didn't know what she meant. I didn't know what flat was. And, but I, what I understood her to be saying was, you can't sing properly. So I really stopped at that point, you know, and um, I spent a lot of my you know, kind of early years just thinking, I, well, I couldn't sing. You know, people say, could you sing? And I said, no, I, I can't. Well, I mean, I don't know how well I would have sang. Um, I, I probably could have done with a few lessons. But what I mean is to her, I mean, she probably forgot it immediately. And here I am, you know, 50 years later, and I still think about it. Because it's, um, you know, it's not enough to say to a kid what you can't do. What you need to do is to help them do things that they're capable of doing. So great teachers know that, and I'm sure she was a great teacher in lots of other ways, but it's often these random comments that we make to kids that make the difference between whether they pursue something or they don't, or whether they feel they can or they can't. And it's amazing how early, I suppose, that kind of self-typing comes in, that we say, you know, we can do this well or we can't do that well, and how that can shape our lives. Yes, I think that's right. And I mean, one of the arguments I, I make in the book is that we all have very different talents and very different passions. You know, being in the element is two things, as I, as I describe it. One is that, you know, if you're in your element, you're doing something that you have a natural aptitude for. You know, that you can, you kind of get what this is. I mean, I've interviewed all kinds of people, you know, from athletes to, uh, to pool players, to business leaders, to musicians. What they all have in common is that they felt at home in this particular thing that they spent their lives doing. They, they understood what it was. Uh, I mean, they needed to improve and get better at it, but they, they, they got the hang of it. And for all of us, that's very different, you know. And one of my big criticisms of education as a system is that we tend to assess people against very narrow criteria of ability. You know, particularly we tend to assess people only in relation to maths or languages or, or literacy, and they're very important. But, you know, there's much more to, to human intelligence than the sort of things we get looked for in standardized tests at school. But being good at something isn't enough. You know, I think to be in your element, you also have to love it. If you love something, you're good at And as I say, you never really work again. You know, I was thinking, uh, uh, my brother used to be in a rock band, and uh, one of the people in the, in the band was a fantastic keyboard player. And uh, I, I went to one of their gigs, and I, asked, I was talking to this guy afterwards, and I said to him, you know, you, you were brilliant tonight. He said, well, thank you very much. I said, you know, I'd love to do that. He said, do what? I said, play like you. And he, and he said, he really surprised me. He said, no, no, you wouldn't. I said, yes, I would. And I, I thought it was great. He said, yeah, but you, he said, the thing is, I, I play like this because I practice five hours a day and I perform like five or six nights a week. And he said, I do that because I love it. I couldn't practice that much and play this much if I didn't love it. And he said, if you loved it, you'd be doing it. He said, I think what you mean is you like the idea of it. Well, I was a bit outraged. <laughs> I said, yes, don't speak to me like this. But it was true, of course. And if you love something, then you'll do it repeatedly all day long. In fact, it doesn't feel like work at all. So that's part of what this book is about. It's about helping people locate their true attitudes, but also the things that you know, make time move differently for them.
And, and how did it come about? I mean, I guess you've been speaking about the topic for a long time before you actually put it down on paper. Yes, I mean, that's true. I mean, I, I remember uh, I was asked a while ago how long it took to write the book, and I said, and I said there were two, two answers, really. One is eight months, which is how long it was, you know, from actually you know, signing the contract to delivering it. It's about eight months, I think. Uh, but the real answer is probably 40 years, you know, because I've spent a long time thinking about these things and being struck by the fact that very many people don't know, have any real sense what their true talents might be. You know, that I meet all kinds of people who spend most of their lives doing things they don't have a particular interest in. They may be good at it, you know, but they don't particularly enjoy the work they do. They kind of bump along uh, just doing things that they happen to fall into and waiting for the weekends. And yet I also meet people who love what they do and couldn't imagine doing anything else, who really do feel that the thing they do, uh, either for a living or other parts of their lives, is when they feel their most authentic self, when they feel most at home. And I've very, always been struck by that, you know, what the difference is and what makes the difference. And I think often, as I say, the difference is made by the system of formal education, which tends to prioritize certain types of uh, way, certain ways of thinking, certain sorts of intellectual ability, and to marginalize people who, who don't especially enjoy that way of doing things or who think differently. It's, a, it's particularly true of people who work in the arts, but not, it's not only true of them. But very often, you know, particularly now in schools, arts programs are being cut back or being dispensed with entirely. And the result, I think, is that we are squandering a huge amount of human talent along the way. And I think it's a catastrophe that we can't really, we can't really afford. Do you think as well that we're getting to a point technologically um, and in terms of our understanding of the world that where it's not enough simply to be good at a particular subject um, in an academic way, such as maths or science, you know, to be able to understand some of the quantum physics, for example, you really need to work across disciplines and be creative. Yes, that's exactly right. And, 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 and by the way, of course, I'm not confining the argument in any way to the arts. I do a lot of work in the area of creativity. And, you know, some of the most wonderfully creative people I know work in the sciences and mathematics. You know, it's not only uh, about the arts disciplines. I have a particular interest in the arts because they're often so marginalized. But this is about science and maths and the whole curriculum. It's an argument for all of it. But you're perfectly right about this. I always want to say this, you know, that children who start school this year, you know, in primary school, will be retiring around about 2070, you know, towards the end of this century. Well, nobody has the faintest idea what the world will look like in five years' time, you know, let alone in 60 years' time. And our present education systems are not designed to meet the needs of the 21st century. They're essentially designed to meet the interests of the 19th century. And it's why they're built the way they are. It's why they function the way that they do. And there's no question for me in the future, we need, and, and right now in the present, we need to have much more creative approaches to education, which look at real, the real talents that individual children have, but also look, as you suggested, at the dynamic connections between different disciplines. You know, we run our high schools uh, on the basis, it seems, that art and science are totally different, you know, and they're different again from the humanities, and history is different from religion and and actually in reality all these things connect and and can into can kind of interpollinate each other so i do think we need to have a much more dynamic conception of education than we do now yes and i suppose if you look you know across history at all the great thinkers uh, many of them have been renaissance type characters 
who've also worked in the arts and the sciences and brought those together. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's exactly right. I ran a national commission in the UK about 10 years ago to develop a, a strategy for creativity in education. And it was a great group. I had on it certainly some great artists and musicians, but also amazing scientists. I had one guy on the group who won the Nobel Prize for Chemistry. And like many scientists, he has a deep interest in the arts. And like many artists, you know, uh, the people on the group were highly disciplined and had a, a keen interest in in history and, and in connections with other disciplines. But I remember asking this particular man, named is Harry Quoto, to describe the creative processes in the sciences. He also, by the way, was a professional designer, had his own design studio, but he'd also won the Nobel Prize for chemistry. So I said, what's the difference in the creative processes in science and the arts, you know, in, in the laboratory and the studio? And he said, there's actually no difference. It's exactly the same process. The outcome is different, but as a, as a creative person, you're looking to make connections to see new possibilities. And you're right, if you look at you know, people like Einstein, Einstein often thought very visually. He often had his best scientific ideas when he was playing the violin. You know, it's, what happens is when we come to organize education, we create these false barriers between disciplines, and as in the world, there's an opportunity for them to reconnect. Yes, uh, one of the things I noticed about almost everybody that you profiled in the book was that um, all of them were lucky in one way or another to have found a mentor. Um, I'd just like to talk to you a little bit more about that. I mean, I suppose to a certain extent, the book is your way of mentoring lots of people. But how can we make mentoring less of an element of luck and more, you know, more ingrained in the way we, we educate our children and the way we you know, go about doing things in corporations, etc. How can we make it a part of our culture? Well, it's, it's a great point. There is a, a chapter in the book about luck. It's called, uh, Do I Feel Lucky? And if I just quickly comment on that, luck is a, is a slightly troubled idea. You know, a lot of the people I interviewed, and they range, as you say, across the arts, the sciences, the musicians I interviewed, you know, famous people, not famous people. Um, a lot of the people I did speak to use that word, you know, they said they'd been lucky to find the thing they love to do. And often the people who you meet who aren't enjoying the things they do will complain of not having been lucky. But I think luck is a bit of a cop-out, you know, because it suggests that the whole thing is about the roll of the dice and it's all about random chance and there's nothing much you can do about it. In my experience, people who say they're lucky often share certain characteristics, you know, they take opportunities, they're prepared to take a risk. They're prepared to put themselves out there. They are willing to invest in themselves. You know, in a way, it's not what happens to us that makes a difference in our lives because we're all subject to random factors. It's what we make of what happens. It's how we behave in response to things that may, may seem to be random. You know, there's a genuine sense in which we do make our own luck and then we act on it. So it's not all about randomness and serendipity. It's, it's as much about attitude as it is about accident, I think. But you're right that many of the people in the, uh, that I interviewed in the book also point to the influence of teachers and parents and friends in their lives who encourage them to take those sorts of chances. And often it's mentors who um, see our own talents before we see them. You know, very often I find people take their own talents for granted. You know, they think, well, if I can do this, presumably anybody can do it. And that's simply not the case. You know, the, the things we're capable of doing ourselves may be very different from the person sitting next to us. So parents and teachers have a critical role, I think, in giving 
um, their children or students the right encouragement. But it's not all, all about kids. You know, the book is also about adults, you know, right to the end of our lives. And it's often the, the case that people turn in their middle or later lives to things that they felt they never had a chance to get to when they were younger. And that's often true, too, a question of having the right encouragement and support from the people around you. And do you feel that perhaps the, um, the economic situation at the moment pre presents opportunities for people to begin to reassess where they are? I mean, if the career is not, you know, all-encompassing anymore. Well, absolutely. I mean, if not now, when? You know, if, if we've learned nothing over the past eight months, you know, with the collapse of the banking system and, and the stock markets and everything else, it's that, you know, a lot of the old bets are off. You know, a lot of people spend their lives doing things on assumptions that turn out not to be true. And I think when you have a reversal, as we've had over the past you know, eight months or so, this is the perfect time to reassess your life and say, well, you know, is this the way I want to carry on and, and move forward? And I think it's a perfect time to, to look at yourself and your talents and decide to you know, perhaps explore these things in a way that you weren't able to before or weren't inclined to before. And, you know, a, a big theme in the book is the idea of creativity, you know, about having original thinking and uh, and fresh ideas, and I think this is the absolute perfect time to do it. You know, in your own life, in education, if you work in education, but also in business, if, if you work in business. I think it's the perfect moment to take these ideas very seriously. And going back to that notion of luck, and, uh, you know, I think um, there, a few people have criticized the book as saying you've only profiled successful people, but of course, every success um, involved a series of failures along the way, and I suppose that's really the difference between somebody that has good luck and bad luck. It's really the perspective, isn't it? Yeah. And I mean, it, it's what well, a couple of things. Are, one, one is um, that, you know, the book is not only about people that we've all heard of, but certainly there are many people in the book that we have heard of. who have been very successful. You know, I interviewed Paul McCartney for the book you know, and Mick Fleetwood. I interviewed uh, Ariana Huffington, Meg Ryan, uh, Bart Connor, who's, you know, one of the world's leading gymnasts. Uh, I have a profile of Richard Branson in the book. There are lots of people you've heard of in the book. But the reason for having them in is, is actually the opposite of, of, of celebrating their celebrity. It's to show that you know, these people weren't born famous. No, they weren't born as celebrities. They're not royalty. You know, they emerged often from quite ordinary backgrounds and uh, from all kinds of uh, difficult circumstances. Uh, but they have become famous and well-known because they persisted in pursuing the thing that they love to do. And in some cases, that's brought them celebrity, but it doesn't in every case. But um, their lives were difficult and complicated, and they had to overcome challenges that makes their stories interesting. And it's too easy often people stand by and say, well, it's fine for them. You know, like, you know, they're, they're famous, you know, but, but they weren't. And they have achieved what they've achieved because they had some belief in themselves and decided to pursue it. But as I said in the introduction, you know, the book isn't about them, it's about the rest of us. Because I think their stories have interesting, so interesting lessons to teach. But almost everybody, in my experience, you know, has uh, a yearning to find something that's more fulfilling in their lives. And it's an encouragement to all of us to say, well, we should do that. Because you know, I don't know how often people think they're going to be back on the planet. You know, that's a matter of personal uh, faith and belief. But we know we're here now, and I think we owe it to ourselves and the people that we care for to encourage them and, our, and in our own lives to pursue things that give us a, a deeper sense of purpose. Do, do you ever worry that you might be a little bit overly optimistic about humanity's capabilities? 
I don't think we can be overly optimistic <laughs> about humanity's capabilities. I am an optimist about humanity's capabilities, but I don't think I'm unrealistic about it either. You know, I've not, I've not lived my life, you know, in a, in a cave. I, I travel a lot. I, um, I work all around the world, and I'm fortunate to be able to do that. You know, I'm in Australia this week. Uh, I'm in the States next week. I'll be back here. I was in Europe a few weeks ago. I've been fortunate in being able to work with people in education, in major corporations. I taught in universities. You know, I've, I meet a lot of people, and I keep my eyes and ears open. And, um, and I don't think that I... I'm naive about people's capabilities. I just know from the conversations I have, from the people who write to me about the book, from people I've worked with over a long period of time, that there is you know, an essential truth in all of this, and that we are born as human beings with immense natural capacities. And if we have the determination to pursue them, our lives take a different course. And I believe it's true, and my experience bears that out. Mm. Now, tell me a little bit about the notion of a nonlinear life. <laughs> I think, you know, one of the, um, the big themes for me is, is the, the need to challenge the ideas that shape what we take for granted. And this is especially true of education. You know, the education system is the way it is because it was invented in the 19th century, literally, to meet the needs of the Industrial Revolution. And much of our thinking has been shaped both by the principles of industrialism but also by the, the, the Enlightenment, you know, that great intellectual movement of the 18th century that has placed such an emphasis on a certain type of rational thinking. And it has immense value. But combined, they've given us this sense that life is really linear. You know, I mean, there's a sense in which, of course, it's true. You know, we're born and we die and, you know, and the days pass and... Uh, and time follows a certain type of route. But it isn't linear in the ordinary sense of things. But education suggests it is. You know, we educate people by age. We educate them in batches. Um, we think we can predict at the age of five what subjects people should study because the lives we expect they're going to lead. But in my experience, life is not like that. It's much more organic. And what I mean by that is that, you know, we, our lives are influenced by feelings and values and relationships and experiences and opportunities. And all the people I interviewed for the book, and it's been true of my own life, um, have uh, met with unexpected opportunities and their lives have moved in directions they could not possibly have predicted five years before or even a few days before. Because if you follow your interests and your passion, new people come into your lives, new opportunities present themselves, you respond to them. It's organic in that sense. Life is dynamic and vital and synergistic. And it's not linear like a production line. And I know when people come to write their curriculum vitae, you know, we impose a narrative on it looking back and try and make it look as if it was all planned. But it, it very rarely is. Very few people I know are doing now what they thought they'd be doing when they were 15. You know, their lives um, are much more vibrant than that. And it's actually the sense in which I mean it's organic. Yes, and I suppose that picks up your comment, too, about it, you know, the element being something that is also relevant to adults in that, you know, it's never too late, really, to find passion and to live with passion. Absolutely. I mean, I know people of all ages who've, who've returned to something that they longed to have done years before. Uh, or, you know, it's just an intuition of something they wish they'd tried. And I encourage everyone to do that. You know, it's a two-way journey. I think part of it is looking into yourself and thinking, are there things at any age? You know, perhaps before you had children, if you've got them now and they're growing up, 
Um, other things that you always wanted to do but you never quite got to, uh, what, what were the times in your life when you felt that you were most resonant with the experience that you were having? You know, for some people it's archaeology. I was talking to somebody recently about that, you know, who always wanted to get to that. Or dance or, or maybe it's writing or it's, or it's uh, starting a business, you know, whatever it is. You know, try and recapture that feeling you had for those particular things. And the second is that journey is to say, well, why don't you go and try something that you've never done before? You know, if you've never gone to an archaeological you know, if you've never, you know, been an archaeological dig, well, go and try one. You know, if you've tried to write poetry, why don't you try it? But just, you know, open up your eyes to possibility. And I think my, my experiences are often advanced by the results. Well, that's wonderful. Look, um, we're nearly out of time, but just before we go, um, is there something else in the, in the works? Can, what, what can your fans expect um, in the future from you? Well, um, I think the, the, the question that always comes up, you know, this particular book, The Element, isn't, isn't meant to be a how-to book. You know, it's not a manual. It's not a 10-step program. It's really a book that's intended to change the conversation. You know, can we think differently about some of these things? Can we think differently about how we educate people? Can we think differently about intelligence? Can we think differently about our own possibilities? But, you know, increasingly, of course, people say, well, what can I do to make this happen for myself, my kids, or the people I work with? So that's really what we're looking at now. We're looking at developing a series of um, courses or mentoring programs or coaching materials that might help people take that next step to help them find their own element. Mm, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for your time, Ken. It's a great pleasure, and thank you for the questions. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Now, our next guest will be Danny Gillen, who will be talking to us later this week about his novel, Will You Love Me Tomorrow? Thanks, everyone. Bye for now.